from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. This is LGBTQ and A. It has now been one month since the mass shooting at the Atlanta spas, and since then, CNN reports there have been at least 50 mass shootings. That's 50 mass shootings in one month, and that number doesn't even take into account other shootings where there were only one or two victims. So yeah, this is a crazy fucking problem, to use an understatement. And this week, I can think of no better person to hear from than Brandon Wolf. Brandon is a survivor of the Pulse nightclub shooting, and since then has become one of the most visible and vocal activists in our community fighting for gun reform. So on today's episode, we're going to do things a bit differently. We're going to revisit an earlier conversation with Brandon that originally aired on the Luminary app. Just a heads up, he does share a few details about the actual shooting at Pulse. If you'd rather not hear that kind of thing, you can scroll ahead about five minutes. But before we do hear that, first we're going to call Brandon up to check in and hear what he's been doing since we last spoke. So let's do that now. Hello? Hey Brandon, it's Jeffrey Masters. Hey Jeffrey, how are you? I'm okay. I think just okay. How about you? I'm hanging in there. You know, it is. Uh, there's a lot going on. Some progress being made, some challenges, but... I'm hanging in there, thanks. You know, you said there's a lot going on. And on the morning that we're taping this, just for context for everybody, this week we've been in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial for the killing of George Floyd. A few days ago, Dante Wright, a 20-year-old, was killed at a traffic stop. Last night, a video was released of Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old, shot in Chicago. And this morning, we learned about a shooting at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. Eight were killed there and seven were injured. On top of all of that is this epidemic of violence against trans people. Most recently, two trans women in North Carolina, my home state, were killed, Jada Peterson and one still unnamed. That makes 14 trans people that we know of that have been killed just this year. That is almost one a week. So when we talk about going numb, is that unavoidable for self-preservation or is there a better way to look at it? Well, I think it's a great question, and I appreciate you sort of laying it out like that, because we're just talking about the things that that are happening right now in this moment, really in the last week or two, right? But this is sort of a drumbeat of violence that is pervasive in American culture. I do think it's important that we protect ourselves however we can. I think it's important that we leave space for self-care, that we not consume headlines in ways that are damaging to us. But we do have to stay tuned in. We have to stay plugged in. We have to stay aware of the human cost of the epidemic of violence in America. We have to continue to say the names of the victims. We have to learn about how they lived. We have to humanize these issues because it is easy to get, you know, to your point, sort of desensitized to the level of violence that's occurring. We've got to stay plugged in. We've got to stay tuned in to the victims. We've got to remember to humanize these issues. We also have to be able to take care of ourselves in the process. I mean, someone who has a personal history of gun violence, do you feel like you're re-traumatized like, with every shooting you hear and read about? Yeah, I am. And, you know, one of the really difficult things about shootings, mass shootings, things that are in the headlines is that people will forward them. And so it's difficult because I'll get, you know, 25 or 30 messages with the same headline, 
you know, with a body count. And, and it's, it's really hard to process that. I appreciate that, that I can be an outlet for people that they feel comfortable sharing things with me. And, and I, I welcome those conversations, but I do have to be careful not to, to allow it to overwhelm me or consume me. Um, I have to be careful not to try to respond to everyone in the first five minutes to leave space for myself to process what's going on, the headlines. I just have to be really intentional and diligent about it so that I can really show up 100% for the people who need me most. Well, something positive that we can talk about is that you recently had a meeting at the White House. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, I, I would love to. It was an incredible honor to be invited to the White House. Uh, over the summer in 2020, I actually worked on an advisory committee for then-candidate Joe Biden's campaign. He put together these sort of groups of community leaders and thought leaders to help shape his first 100 days. And so we got an opportunity to, to craft policy, to have conversations with world leaders and talk about what's possible in the first 100 days of the administration. One of the co committees that I served on was the Gun Violence Prevention Committee, and we talked a lot about the executive actions that the president announced last week. So when I got the call and he said he was going to be signing some of these and taking some action on gun violence, I was incredibly honored. I was in awe. I found optimism and hope for the first time in a really long time on issues of gun violence feels like we've been on defense for a really long time. So I made my way to Washington, D.C. I got an opportunity to sit in the Rose Garden and listen to remarks from President Biden, the Attorney General Merrick Garland. And then he, unplanned, impromptu, invited us into the Oval Office for a more intimate, candid conversation about the state of gun violence in America. It was really nice to be able to hear it from his own mouth. It was really nice to hear his perspective on how the epidemic of gun violence in America holds us back from being truly exceptional. And I told him that as soon as we get legislation over the finish line, I'll be right there in that office again watching him sign it. Right, because to move forward on this issue, we can't only rely on executive actions. Well, yeah, I mean, we're never going to get anywhere if we just rely on the powers of the executive branch. We have to get the legislature on board. Congress has to find the political courage and will to get something done. You know, one of the unspoken things, I think, in the president's remarks last week was this invitation for Congress to find the same spine that he found in order to get something done on guns. And when we were in the Oval Office, I, I thought, what was profound was his sort of candidness with members of Congress. There were a number of senators in the room, and he turned to them and he challenged them. He said, the rest of America, this administration, we're all just wondering, what are you waiting for? We've all taken the steps needed. We've all found the courage to get something done on this issue, and we need you to find the same courage. I mean, to that, in the interview that we're about to hear, you surprised me because you said that you were optimistic about gun reform and everything that needed to be done. Now, that was two years ago. Do you still feel that same optimism? You know, if America runs on Duncan, I think I run on optimism. And that's because I don't really have a choice. You know, almost five years ago now, everything that I loved was ripped away from me. The people that I cared the most about, the world that I had constructed that was supposed to be safe for me, it was torn apart. And the way that I've made it through the last five years is on optimism, is on hope that we can find a better path forward. I find a lot of hope and optimism in the current administration. I think that might surprise people because I wasn't always a fierce supporter during the primary. I had other you know, candidates that I was supporting, but I do find a lot of hope and optimism in our current path. And I find a ton of hope and optimism in young people. Uh, every time I get an opportunity to, 
to spend time with young activists who are really changing the face of what it means to organize, my optimism is renewed. So yes, I feel optimistic today. Doesn't mean that we can't fight like hell. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight like hell. But certainly I'm optimistic that we can get something done. I think that is such a great place to leave an at to get to the full interview. So thank you so much for allowing us to check in with you. Absolutely. Anytime. Great to be here. Awesome. So this is Brandon Wolf and I speaking in 2019 about the aftermath of the Pulse nightclub shooting, as well as the state of gun control and reform in America. Here it is. Now that it's been three years after Pulse, I just wonder, like three years later, what it what do you remember most about the night? There are memories that are gone, really, kind of lost behind this, you know, this fog, this traumatic haze. But there are some that are really vivid for me. I remember before we left my apartment, I remember, you know, the joy, the happiness, hanging out with my best friends, doing what, you know, normal people do. I remember it was really busy. Uh, I remember standing on the patio. I remember, you know, dancing. I remember the music. I remember that, you know, because it's Latin night and I don't speak Spanish, feeling really like out of out of my comfort zone. And then there's a lot that's lost in there. I think, you know, some of the things that stand out most vividly, I remember the sounds of the bathroom. For some reason, it was like there was water dripping, right? And that sound replays in the back of my head. I can remember that there was somebody else's cup on the edge of the sink. For some reason, I remember that really vividly. I remember the first sounds of gunshots and, and being very confused as to what was happening. And I remember the sense of kind of dread that fell over me when I realized what was going on. Uh, it's that moment when the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you realize that something really bad is happening. Did you know instantaneously or did it take you a while to realize? No, I was confused. And remember, we were, you know, we were at a club, right? It's like people are out at the Abbey on the weekend or whatever. Uh, and so we had been drinking and, and there was all of that element to it too. Uh, but when I first heard gunshots, I was confused. I, I remember I thought it was part of the music, but it seemed... Um, unnecessarily loud, if that makes sense. It was like as if one line of the of the backing track had been turned up too far. And I remember my ex and I were standing next to each other in the bathroom and he looked at me and asked me what was going on with the music. And so there was that moment of confusion, but when it really hit home was when about 10 or 12 other people came into the bathroom with us, right? This is a very small bathroom. It's There's no stalls. There's three urinals lined up against a wall. There's no doors or anything like that. And for 12 people to suddenly rush in and look as if they had seen the worst thing you know, imaginable, uh, that I think that's when it really started to set in. And there was a pause. So there was a round of gunfire and then a break where it felt like there was silence in the club. You know, of course, the music was still going and there were people, but it was as if all of that was muted. Uh, and there was this eerie silence that fell over the club. That's when those people came into the bathroom and then a second round of gunfire started. And it's when all of it kind of, you know, came together in my mind. Hearing you talk about being in the bathroom during this, and then previously you've talked about how you went to Pulse that night, just because it was the closest club. The things that stand out to me the most are just like how much chance played a role in everything and just coincidence. Like, do you think about that? All the time. You know, one of the things that I share with people and, and I shared when I was in Washington, D.C., is that everything about that night was ordinary, 
right? You might look at people's lives after these moments. You think about Pulse survivors, you think about Parkland survivors, and you think of them as extraordinary people, right? And they're really not, right? None of that was extraordinary. None of our night was extraordinary. It was absolutely the most ordinary thing that could possibly have happened, save for this one event, right? We, we always went out on the weekends. We always, you know, picked whatever was kind of closest in the last second. So these were things that regular people do. It was a safe space for us. Hulse was a safe space for a lot of people, right? And I think people that resonates with other people, especially in the LGBTQ community, because bars and clubs are where we've had to feel safe for such a long time. And so, you know, everything about that night was exactly what I would have been doing any other day. And it just so happened that that was the night. Pulse has now put in this, itself into this tradition of our of a, of a stonewall of the upstairs lounge arson attack of our safe spaces being um, targets of violent attacks. Has it reframed how you think about these other historic events now that you have like lived through one? Yeah, you know, I had the really distinct opportunity um, to meet with a, a one of the original Stonewall activists um, and listen to him share his story. His name's Jay. He lives in St. Pete area. And, uh, you know, listen to him share what his experience was like that night. Listen to him share, again, just how ordinary life was, right? And how everything changed on a dime. And all of a sudden, he's part of this historic moment. Um, and it brought a lot of clarity and I think um, gravity to the situation around Pulse. Because all of a sudden, before you realize that you're in the center of what feels like a you know, a hurricane of history. And it's difficult to find your footing. I remember in the days and the weeks after Pulse, how unsettled I felt about everything. It was almost as if the world was moving in fast motion around me and I couldn't find any sense of normalcy in anything, right? The, the grocery store didn't feel normal. The bank didn't feel normal. There were news cameras everywhere in the places that were ordinary for me to be. Um, you know, I went, I remember I was going to um, pick up my debit card because I hadn't closed my tab, right, at the bar. I never got a chance to close my tab, so I went back to get my credit card. Wait, the night of Pulse, that your credit card was still there. Yeah. And you still had to go get that. Yeah, so I went to... Sorry, the, it goes back to everything you were saying. That's the most ordinary thing The ever. most ordinary thing, right? We hadn't had a chance to close our tabs yet, so my credit card was still open at the bar, and they set up this space for people to go and collect their belongings that they may have left at the club. And on my way there, I was in the car driving there, and I got a call from a friend who had you know planned to meet me there, and he said, I just want you to know that MSNBC and CNN and Fox are all sitting outside of this space looking for people to share their stories. And one person asked if you were going to be here to pick up your stuff. And I turned around and went home. And I never went back to get that credit card. Obviously, I had just ordered a new card. But like I said, it just brings some gravity, right, to the most ordinary of things becoming so extraordinary and also so invaded, not only was it that safe space at Pulse that felt invaded, it was our everyday lives, it was who we were that suddenly became a spectacle for people and a topic of discussion and debate on, you know, cable news channels. And going off the word ordinary, like, that's what, like, you quote-unquote were too. Mm. You know, like, before the attack. Yeah. Is it weird now that every time your name is in print, like, the word Pulse survivor also follows it? Yeah, it's hard to wrap my head around sometimes, right? Because who wants that to be their identity? That, you know, their entire life is is shaped by something so horrific and something so tragic. 
But at the same time, it's also empowering, right? Because too often, violence against the LGBTQ community goes unnamed and unspoken of. And we were really at risk of that after Pulse when the national talking heads wanted to make this something that it, you know, wanted to to write the story themselves. They wanted to make it about terrorism. They wanted to make it about, you know, Islamic extremism. These are all the things that people were talking about. And what they tried to do, I think unsuccessfully, was erase the fact that this was largely LGBTQ people of color who were impacted. And that had everything to do with what happened afterward, right? The recovery and how people sought resources. Um, But the national kind of storyline didn't include that in the beginning. And so now when I see, you know, articles come out that include my story and other people's stories, I think that we're doing a justice for those 49 people who aren't here anymore because we're actually telling the real stories of what happened and what happened afterward and how we can stop it from happening to other people. Well, watching like the news cycles, they are getting shorter and shorter around the mass shootings that keep taking place. And I just wonder, is there like, do you have any like recommendations for like people who are covering these stories in the news of like how we can like not let that happen? Yeah, it's so hard. And, and, you know, largely, I think the reason that we're in the place that we're in is because a social media makes, you know, everything shorter. Uh, everything's got to be tweet, bite-sized so that people can digest it. They don't have an attention span longer than that. And then, of course, the media has really turned into, you know, one long reality TV show. And so I think it's difficult. I think we're in a really challenging position with how do we cover these things and not turn them into some circus, right? Um, And I understood in, in that moment that the media had a role to play and that we had to have a relationship because if our stories were ever going to be told, we would need allies in the media. Um, But it's also important that we hold folks in the media accountable, right? And one of the ways we can do that is by not giving so much space and notoriety to the people who commit these atrocities, you know, and replace that kind of coverage, those storylines with the people who lost their lives, right? I would have loved to have seen more news coverage of my best friends than I did the shooter and his wife. Because in my mind, that's what's important. And these journalists, they tend to, you know, repeat the same scripts. Another mass shooting happens and like they almost like go to the old file and print it out. I think that a lot of that has to do with like because the decision makers are also numb to this. You know, like the fact that I can hear about a shooting and go about my day is a a large change from where we were 10 years ago. Yeah, it's so unfortunate. It's sad, right? That we've almost allowed ourselves to feel like violence is inevitable. That we have allowed this country to get to that place is a shame. But I think it, it, it also isn't reality, right? The reality is not that these things are impossible to solve. The reality is not that violence is inevitable because other countries have solved it. The reality is that we have allowed our leaders to get away with being not held accountable for their inaction. You know, I think about my moment in DC and I was getting frustrated because For people who don't know, you testify in front of the House Ways and Means Committee. Yeah. First of all, three and a half years later, I was the first survivor of Pulse to testify before Congress. That's a shame, right? It's disgraceful, actually. And it's totally unacceptable that one of the most horrific acts of violence in our nation's history and our stories were not being told in D.C. I'm hopeful that this is kind of a turning of the tide for that. But there was a moment where the ranking Republican member 
kept coming back to his talking point. And his talking point was, you know, I go into communities that have been impacted by violence and they ask me what I'm going to do to help make their communities safer and more inclusive, right? What laws am I going to pass? And I ask them, what are you doing to make your community safer and more inclusive? And so the questioning came around to me again. And, and you know, I said, with all due respect, sir, we are doing that every single day. I just quit a career in business, a 14-year career in business, to go to work for a nonprofit organization to make my community safer and more inclusive. But that doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to do your job. That's what we put you there for. That's what we pay you a lot of money to do, is to pass legislation that makes life better for people like me. And part of the speech you made for Congress was advocating for common sense gun reform. Mm -hmm. Is that something, is that a phrase that means something specific? Because I hear it all the time and I just frankly don't know. I'll tell you, my dad is conservative. I think he voted for Trump. I could, I'm pretty certain he voted for Trump. Uh, he also owns several assault rifles. You know, we're very polar opposite on the issue of gun safety. But when I say common sense gun safety reform, that's me and my dad sitting across the dinner table with each other saying, so what do you think about how we start to tackle this issue, right? What are the things that we know to be common sense? And some of those things are if you are a criminal, someone who has a violent criminal past, you should not own a firearm right? Which means you need to take a background check. So we agree that everyone who wants to own and possess a firearm needs to take a background check. And that's violent criminals only. We're not saying people who got arrested for like a drug offense. Right. right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we talk about background checks. We also talk about red flag laws, right? So if somebody has said, you know, something that makes them potentially a risk to themselves or others, we're just going to take them away for a minute while we get the situation handled and we tamp it down and we figure out what's going on and then you can have the gun back, right? These are things that when you sit down across the dinner table are common sense. Things that'd be hard pressed not to agree with, Mm -hmm. no matter who you vote for. And the reality is that most Americans agree on most of those common sense gun safety proposals. The only thing standing in the way is a very, very powerful gun lobby who stands to make a lot of money from continuing to put more guns on the streets and politicians who are beholden to that lobby. Now, Pulse is like the big event that kind of catapulted you you into activism. How soon after Pulse did that happen? Pretty quickly. So the night of the shooting and into the early hours of the morning, I was kind of at set up a base camp down the street. It was about two or three blocks away outside of a 7-Eleven. I actually live across the street from that 7-Eleven now. And that was base camp. And we had several cars with phone chargers and we were calling everyone we knew. We were posting, you know, trying to find my best friends. And at that moment, I didn't want to talk to anyone about what I had experienced. I was most worried about finding the people that I cared most about. In fact, I just was going back through messages and I found one from Brian Stelter, who is on CNN. He now does, he has his own show. And his message was asking me, you know, would you like to come on and share your story? This is like maybe two hours after everything had calmed down. And my response to him was very rude. I, I, you know, I just said, this is a totally inappropriate question. I can't find my friends. How dare you ask me? you know, when I'm still looking for people I don't know, you know, whether they're with us or not. And so that was my mood right after the shooting. And that lasted for a couple of days. But I went home, you know, I showered, I I got myself together and I watched the TV. I mean, I stared at the TV 
for probably 24 hours waiting for their names on a list, right? And doing odds in my head. Okay, if there's 49, we know there's 49 and there's 40 names on here, there's only nine left. What are the chances that they could be in a hospital bed instead of laying on that club floor? And after we found out the news that they had both passed away, I finally got access to cable television for the first time and I turned it on and it was Fox, of all things. And they were talking about Pulse, but they were not talking about me or my friends or the 47 other people who had died that night. They were talking about Donald Trump and his tweets. They were talking about Hillary Clinton and her response. They were talking about Islamic terrorism and do we call it that, do we not? It was so infuriating to me that I immediately reached out to one of the producers at CNN and and one of my friend's moms, and I said, we need to say something. And we're going to do it on our terms. And this is what it's going to look like. There's going to be a group of us. We're not talking about politics. We're not talking about this, that, or the other thing. We're talking about our friends because that's the story that needs to be told. We're only doing it together. We're only doing it in his apartment where we would have been anyway. And that's the way we're going to start telling this story. And that, I think that was the moment where I made a decision that if I didn't share, if I didn't you know, tell the story, if I wasn't their voice, then they wouldn't get one. And that is such a hard position to be in. As you said, like you just lost your two best friends, you're grieving, and it's up to you in that like day later to then like take to the TV in order to like make sure the story being told is like the one you want. That like that's a lot to carry with you. Yeah, it's a I mean, it's a rough position for anybody to be in, right? I think about people ask me how other shootings have impacted me, other mass tragedies have impacted me. And I talk a lot about how personally impacted I was after Parkland. That probably is the closest to the pulse trauma, level of trauma that I've felt. Why that one specifically? Yeah, it's it's hard to really grasp why certain things impact me and why others don't. But I think that one in particular moved me so much because I knew what those kids were going to have to face next, right? I knew what they survived. I knew the sounds that they heard. I knew what they saw, the bodies lying on the ground. I knew how forever their lives would be changed. And then on top of that, I knew what was coming next. I knew that they wouldn't sleep well for the rest of their lives. I knew they would have horrible nightmares. I knew that they would look for exits in public spaces. I knew that they would get anxiety being in crowded places. And I knew that they would be forced in front of television cameras to air all of their stories in front of the country in the most raw and vulnerable possible way. And so for that reason, I think I felt mostly traumatized for them. Maybe there's another episode of this podcast where we talk about why people didn't do anything after Pulse, but they moved really quickly after Parkland. But there was that Wait, moment. I'm sorry, I don't want to move off that. Do you like? Do you have like answers to why? Well, I mean, I have my own theories. thoughts. Do you yeah, mind sharing and theories? Them? Well, yeah, we were too gay and too brown for people to care. That's real, right? When we got up in front of a camera, people in our community, people in the, the Central Florida community got it because we're them, right? And they were feeling it. But when we stood up in front of a camera and asked for action from our leaders, they didn't see their kids in us. We were in a dark, dirty nightclub, you know, gay and brown and doing what we do. And it's easy for us to feel as other to them. 
And I think that's why... And they're used to ignoring like people like us. That's you right. Knew. Yeah, think about the HIV and AIDS crisis and how the LGBTQ community was able to be erased for years until hundreds of thousands of people had died. And we had to take to the streets to say, hello, we're here, we've been asking you for help, and now we're demanding that you do your jobs and help us. And I think that's why, to circle back to how we get into activism and all of that and, and what motivates you to share your story, that was one of the motivating factors. When I turned on Fox News and it was not me, not people that looked like me, not people that looked like people in that club, talking about Pulse as if they knew our stories, as if they knew our pain and our struggle, that I realized that if people did not step up from our community, that the brown LGBTQ voices would be erased from the story. And they were for a long time. Our leaders in, in Tallahassee and in Congress did not take action after Pulse. And now, like, three years later, has it gotten easier? Like, you mentioned, like, loss of sleep and nightmares. Are those things you'll literally have to deal with the rest of your life? Forever, yeah. There, there are things that, you know, will likely get easier with time. There, there are moments that have gotten easier, but, yeah, I still have nightmares. Uh, I still look for exits. I still get nervous in a crowded space. If people start pushing and shoving in a space that there isn't a quick way out of, I, I panic and I have to leave. Um, that's real, and I'm going to be with that, you know, for the rest of my life. I'm really curious about how we as a society care for people after a mass shooting, since we have so many of them. After you went home eventually, uh, after polls, did any, like, city official or mental health professional reach out to you just to let you know what to expect? Yeah, you know, I think the response to the shooting in Orlando is a model for how we can do things in other places. Um, first of all, the city set up a trauma center called um, the Orlando United Assistance Center. And they're the ones that really kind of centralized all of the resources, right? And what you could expect, they gathered um, information on attorneys, information on mental health care providers, uh, information on what hospitals were providing, what services, and, and all of that. So I think that was really important. We also immediately reached out to the Department of Justice and formed a partnership there, right, to make sure that there was money coming in from federal dollars to provide mental health resources for people who had been impacted, um, first responders, survivors, family members, all of that. And then all the money that was raised, the city worked alongside the National Compassion Fund. That's the, that's the name of it. And they made sure that all of those dollars went to directly impacted people, not routed through other organizations that were going to suck up administrative fees. So they didn't say, okay, we're going to take this 20-some million dollars and you know open a building or start a foundation. They said, we're going to actually give it to the people who were impacted so that they can pay their rent while they're out of work for months at a time so that they can cover the, you know, the costs of recovering from physical injury or as a family so they can bury their loved ones with dignity and respect. It certainly changed my life. I know it changed other people's lives to be able to take time to begin to grieve and heal. I mean, no time is ever enough time, but to be able to take time away from work and life and, and not worry that you're going to be evicted at the same time. After the shooting, what was your next time at a gay bar like? Did it take a while to like no, want to go? No, I went one? that week. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I'm defiant. I'm a defiant person, so I think my parents would agree with me on that. 
and and it really comes from you know growing up. Uh, my mom passed away when I was twelve, uh, and my dad struggled with mental illness afterward, um, severe depression. He worked like crazy overtime. I had two really young siblings, so I, I basically kind of became a second parent to them for the rest of my childhood. And then I wanted to you know go to college and stuff, so I was super involved in school. I had a part time job, and so I became kind of a warrior at a young age. Um, and and I felt like in the immediate aftermath of Pulse that I didn't want it to define me, right, in a personal way. I knew that for other people who didn't know me, it would come to define me, right? But but in my personal life, I wanted to take back control of what I felt like I had lost. And so that week they held a, um, I want to say it was like a drag fundraiser kind of benefit event um, at another bar in town. And I went um, and it was scary and and also empowering at the same time. You know, I held my ex's hand really, really tight the whole time, but I needed it. I needed to be there in that space with other queer people to say loud and clear that this was not going to change who we were. It was not going to scare us into hiding, but rather it was going to empower us to make change. And so how have you seen it affect the Orlando queer community on the whole? Yeah. Well, the entire Orlando community is different. In what ways? If you came to Orlando on June 11th of 2016, it would look like any other city. It's very clean. Uh, it's new. You know, it hasn't really been around a long time. Uh, there's pretty lakes and fountains and all of that. And then immediately following June 12th, there's rainbows everywhere. And there's signs in everybody's windows saying Orlando's strong. There's murals painted on every street corner downtown. There's rainbow crosswalks. It was as if the community said, we've always been loving and accepting and inclusive, but we're just going to come out as loving, accepting, and inclusive and tell everybody you belong here. So when you're in downtown, you can't turn left or right without seeing a rainbow, and that means you belong here. The entire city had a coming out party, um, and it's been really beautiful. I moved away for a couple years, and I missed it because I missed feeling that sense of, you know, knowing that I belong because I can turn on every street corner and see it. And that they understand what you have gone through in a way, right? Yeah, it's the first place... I've ever lived where someone would hug me in the grocery store, right? That I didn't know and didn't know my story, but could just see that I was hurting. And, you know, can I hug you? Not knowing that you had been a survivor of Pulse. Correct, yeah. That happened a lot in the immediate aftermath, and it still happens today, right? People will, uh, before I testified in D.C., um, I was at the grocery store, and a woman pulled me out of line and said, I just want you to know, I see you, I hear you. I'm really excited that, Orlando is going to be represented in Congress. I mean, it really feels like our community does all of this together. That's incredible. Yeah. Hearing you describe what happened to Orlando, it it's as if the city on the whole has like followed the advice that your friend gave you. Mm-hmm. I think you've told the story that, what, what did he tell you before like one of your last conversations. Yeah, so Drew is so obnoxious. He had a master's degree in clinical psychology. So we called it Drew's therapizing. And he would do that when he was drunk. Every time he would have some nugget of advice that would turn into a three-hour long therapy session. Everybody's crying at the end. Sounds Um, like a homosexual. Yeah, basically. (laughs) And so... uh, that evening's free therapy session was on love. And and the reason was, you know, I was there with my ex and this is the first person, like I said, I'm kind of defiant and a warrior. So this is really the first person I had in my life that meant what he meant to me. I was in love really for the, for the first time. And Drew could see that. And um, 
we were going through a rough spot. We had broken up and and Drew was not having it. He wanted his best friend to be happy. And so that day's therapy session was love. He pulled us each to our own corners and his boyfriend talked to one and he talked to the other about love and and not letting the small things get in the way and you know not allowing the weight of the world to come into our relationship. And then at the end of our kind of lectures, he brought us together and he did this thing where he has these really long kind of goofy arms and he put them, draped them around your shoulder. He does it in every picture. And he draped his arms around our shoulders and he said, you know what the world does not say enough is that we love each other. I think we need to do that more. And it is. It's as if Orlando took that message and brought it to life in the form of art and music and community. And it's been really, really beautiful to see. That's an incredible story. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that the world continues to see it, right? Because that's a, that's a choice that we made. You think about what happens in the aftermath of these events. You think about what happened in the aftermath of 9-11, in the aftermath of Parkland. It's almost as if a tragedy takes on a personality um, based on the response of the community. And Orlando's response was love. And we were not gonna be defined by anything else. And I think that the world has come to know that about the city of Orlando. And that response wasn't something that, you know, was part of a, like a scheme or a plan. Like, let's make this a response. It just was the response. That's right. And you felt, you know, people who maybe had not always agreed with you suddenly got it, right? I, I think one of the people that stands out to me is uh, Orange County, former Orange County Mayor Teresa Jacobs, who is a lifelong Republican. She had, you know, opposed LGBTQ equality in the past, and in the immediate aftermath of Pulse, the first thing she said was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I didn't get it, right? I didn't see what you were facing. I didn't understand the struggles that you were up against, but I get it. How can I help? And that rippled through the entire community. And so with this progress that the LGBTQ community is making, as well as just you know, gun safety in general. I think that I said earlier that gun safety has like not changed. There's been no movement. Mm. I don't know if that's true or not. No, yeah, I would I would challenge you on that. Okay, because I was wondering, like, what there must be small victories and losses that we don't see, right? Yeah, and I would argue that they're big victories, right? Think about where we were in 2016 and what were the presidential candidates able to say and not say about gun safety reform? right? Hillary Clinton was not coming out railing against the NRA and talking about an assault weapons ban. Oh, they had to be really careful what they were saying. You had to toe the line. It was not something that you could show up and talk about and create an issue around, right? And then think about 2018 and where gun safety reform lived in the conversation during a midterm election, right? And this is maybe even more vulnerable because presidential candidates are allowed to be further out on issues. Um, These are folks who are in potentially conservative districts who are really running to take back the House, and they did it in overwhelming fashion. Over 40 candidates backed by the NRA lost in the 2018 midterms. That's massive. That's historic. You think about the NRA today, and it's practically bankrupt, right? And, And just... Four or five years ago, that was not the case. So these wins, I think, are not small. I think they're large. I also think that gun safety reform has moved from being a partisan issue to being a generational issue, where you have an entire generation of young people who have a totally different perspective on guns and gun safety than their parents, right? Because they live in a society where they don't know anything different than active shooter drills. They don't know anything different than bulletproof backpacks, 
and, and metal detectors at the doors. And that has shaped their perspective in a way that I think will create sweeping change sooner than people think. And that is the amazing Brandon Wolf. If you want to check out more of his work, you can follow him on Twitter at B-J-O-E Wolf. And then as always, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. The podcast is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. Those are amazing ways to connect and also recommend guests. We do love hearing from you every week. And not only that, but helping us to spread the word about our show on social media or just by texting your friends is truly the biggest way you can help us continue making new episodes, which we desperately want to do. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Bye.